Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik asks us to think about the present. In every moment, each of us stands at the juncture of past and future. The past is that which is not real any longer, and the future is that which is not real yet. What we call present is nothing but the vantage point at which we look either forward or backward. But for many of us, we feel trapped and enslaved by the present. Looking back, we see traumas and disappointments, moments where we felt overlooked or rejected, times we tried and didn't get where we thought we wanted to go or achieve what we hoped to achieve. And looking forward, we see trepidation and fear. The unknown can be scary. What happens if I try something new and it doesn't work or I fail? Sometimes the thought of change itself is just too overwhelming. And all that keeps us trapped and enslaved. Rabbi Karen Kadar, our guest today, writes, So much enslaves us. We are enslaved by our assumptions of what is possible. We are enslaved by the words we use, the constructs of our thoughts and speech, the way we explain the past and speak about the future. We find ourselves in the midst of the Omer, the 49 days between our rejoicing of liberation at Passover and our observance of Shavuot, our celebration of the truths revealed at Sinai and the gift of Torah and tradition. In her remarkable book, Omer Accounting, Rabbi Kadar teaches us to use these days of the Omer to follow a path that leads us to find the answer to the essential question, what are you waiting for? Rabbi Karen Kadar, great to have you today. It's fantastic to be with you, Dan. So tell us a little bit about your background. What was it that drew you to, at an early stage when women were entering the rabbinate, to find that to be your path? Uh, I decided to be a rabbi um, when I was eight years old. So there were no women in the rabbinate when I made my decision. There were no female role models, though my rabbi, Jean Littman, of blessed memory, had a great influence on my life. I grew up in Washington, D.C. But I was a little girl, walked into my mother's kitchen one morning and said, Mom, I want to be a rabbi. And she said, okay. That was such the right answer to give. I can imagine what that must have been like for her without having any role models or any women in the rabbinet, but for her not to say, well, that's not what girls do or that's not something you're allowed, but to allow you to hold on to that possibility. So from that time that you were eight and then you grew up, how did you hold on to that dream? Well, it was not so much a dream as it was just a fact. You know, I made a declaration. My parents brought me in a house that basically said yes to almost anything that we aspire to. They believed in aspiration. My father of blessed memory used to say, you know, Karen, there is a void out there. And the reason why there's a void is because nobody steps into it. So you just, anytime you want, step into that void. Uh, by the time I got to college, that's when I started hearing no's, um, that I can't do that that uh, I'm a woman, that I'm too pretty, that women don't do such things. I'm just trying to prove a point. But by the time college came around, the reality was so embedded in who I was. I don't know. I just don't seem to take no for an answer. 
Well, I'm sort of curious about that. You know, what do you think it is in someone's constitution that when people throw up roadblocks or they tell you no, that you say, thanks, I wasn't asking you? That is a very important and essential question and goes straight into the heart of spiritual practice. How do we live in abundance? How do we live in the expanse of yes? Um, How do we lessen the voices that in the name of rationality are just voices of fear that don't allow us to pursue forward? A lot of it is our upbringing. A lot of it is what we're taught either by parents or by teachers or by society. A lot of it is a practice, learning to say yes to the universe. I think it's interesting that so much gets embedded in us so early in our journey. I remember when I was like eight years old, maybe not even, we were at services one night, and I grew up in a very small synagogue outside Washington, D.C., and the rabbi was doing some kind of like a dialogue with the congregation as part of his message. And I remember he asked a question. I have no idea what the question was, but I remember feeling like I wanted to answer it. And I raised my little hand. Instead of my mom telling me, you know, sit there and be quiet, the rabbi called on me and answered my question in a thoughtful way and not in a pedantic way. And I remember feeling so empowered by the fact that, hey, my questions actually kind of matter. Exactly. It's those little moments that either sparkle and urge us forward or that somehow dent us and keep us from moving forward. However, regardless of how you were brought up, people, I believe, have an infinite capacity to change. So what has it been about that journey inward, that that spiritual inquiry that sort of has captured so much of your writing and, and your life What drew you there? That also is a good question that I'm asked a lot. I think when people say, why did you want to become a rabbi? Even at age eight, as a little girl, I wanted to know what rabbis knew. That's how I would have answered it as a a child. What did I mean by that? It seemed to me that they were engaged in matters of consequence. And as I grew older, for me, matters of consequence were the undefined moments of life, the fuzzy edges of life, not the multiplication tables of life where things added up, but where things were blurry and mysterious and metaphysical and poetic and metaphoric. And that, to me, made much more sense, I guess, for some of your listeners, ironically, than did the absolutes in life. So I think it's interesting. Sometimes I think people take a lot more comfort in the absolutes and knowing that, you know, two plus two equals four. And you were finding more uh, of a magnetic pull towards the places that were less defined. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm recently retired and, um, and everybody says to me, so you're going to learn canasta, right? And no offense to the listeners who are who are bridge players and lodge players or whatever games you're playing, but I didn't even like games when I was a child, let alone games now. Rules were confining to me. The yes or no to me was boring and made me actually anxious. It's when you can go off into the in a path in the woods or sit by the edge of the sea 
and just breathe in the mystery of the universe and the inevitable and the unknowables, that's what gives me comfort. I kind of resonate to that. I really thought I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid, and I remember taking chemistry, and I couldn't get better than a C. <laughs> and I would sit with my chemistry teacher. I'm like, why can't I do better? And she says, well, you kind of write down the answer, and then you erase it and write something else. Why do you do that? And I said, well, because 6.47213 doesn't look like an answer to me. Like, yes is an answer, or let's discuss it as an answer. She goes, well, that's the answer, and uh, which is good that I didn't become a doctor because that probably would have been bad for all of the people I might treat. Um, oh, my God, Rabbi, I totally think that's the beginning of some chapter. <laughs> probably. I, I love I love that. In your book, The Dance of the Dolphin, you wrote this amazing passage. You wrote, what is there to say about the inner life? It eludes comprehension, and yet it is ever-present, enveloping every moment of life. One lives from the inside out, a gnarl of emotion, biography, memory, and spirit, each blending and bending into the other like knotted strands of crocheted comforter. It is a world I will never truly understand, and yet the only reality I can ever know. So in your many years of studying and writing about the spirit and looking at that knotted, crocheted comforter, what have you learned about nurturing the inner life? That it's a practice and that you have to practice all the time and that it requires um, compassion, self-compassion and compassion towards others. And that the opposite of judgment is curiosity. And so it requires an immense commitment to curiosity, as much non-judgment as possible. And that the inner life, the inner voices, the negativity that is in our minds and in our hearts are motivators. They're motivators to do, to not, to stay stationary. Um, they're motivators to do bad in the world. They're motivators that ask us to be anxious or critical or judgmental. The opposite of those fears, those negative voices is love. And as much as one can practice opening one's heart into love, um, then the spiritual life becomes expansive. So love ends up being something that I think in our Western culture, we don't always think about. You know, in Western culture or what we see on TV, love is a spontaneous thing. And I really think love is something that is a tool that we can use to channel our attention, our intention, our capacity for care. You know, the Torah tells us that love is not an option. It's a commandment. You must love your neighbor as yourself. You must love the stranger. You must love the Holy One. And that idea that you have to, you're commanded as an individual to open up one's heart is something that doesn't always jive with the way that we kind of think about moving through modern life. Exactly right. That love is an imperative. I'm speaking from your bima about the imperative of love and listening and the, the ability to, to listen for that commandment of love. And, and the way I, what I like to say is, a guiding principle here, to put very simply, is the eternal esoteric question that you have, whatever your whys and hows and wherefores, whatever the question is, the answer should be love. 
And when the answer is love to the, the abiding questions of the spirit, then that leads you to a gentle path. I think also this idea of time being something that is sacred and to be used deliberately is something else that kind of drives that. There's like this urgency, you know, there's that passage in the Pirkei of Vote that says, you know, the day is short and the work is plentiful and the labors are indolent and the reward is great and the master of the house is pressing, right? Abraham Joshua Heschel said that Judaism is a religion of time aiming at the sanctification of time. There are no two hours alike. Every hour is unique, exclusive, and endlessly precious. So how do you see those pressures that sort of happen upon a person, the idea that, you know, none of us are getting out of here alive, in the fact that life is often fragile and fleeting? How does that sort of impose on one's inner life? Well, you said a couple, you said many things just now, um, which are all uh, very important. Time is part of the practice. You know, people say, well, I just don't have the time to do this or I don't have the time to do that, which is why in Judaism there are fixed times in which to acknowledge the mystery in life. People have problems with prayer, and we can discuss prayer at another time. The necessity to have fixed times in which you sit and contemplate things invisible through a liturgy, that is something that is really important and that can bring us to a higher understanding. As you know, when we wake up, we're supposed to say, I am truly grateful to you who has restored my spirit. And at night, we say, which means, God, when I lie down, may it be for peace. And just those two things, if you began your day with, thank you for restoring my soul, and you went down to sleep at night with, spread over me a canopy of peace, those nuggets of time would alter the way that you saw the world. It doesn't take much, but it is a practice, and it is something that you need to be consistent with, as consistent as one can be. And I think that idea of practice, of being deliberate in how you wake up in the morning or how you live during the course of your day or how you orient your consciousness as you put your head down on the pillow is something that I think also is part of the joy of religious life, right? We often look at religious life, especially those of us who are not orthodox, as impositions or inconveniences or things that get in the way of how to have a meaningful or a joyous experience of life. And the fact is that I think that imposing ritual and structure can often create those pathways to a deeper sense of the inner life. Yes, or we look at religious life as something we do occasionally when we uh, kind of guilt into, into showing up occasionally. But what if you know, what if we took these unpacked, these packed words like the religious life and prayer and God and just say, there is a physical reality, just like gravity. When I drop my book, it's going to fall on the floor. And there is also a metaphysical reality. And both those two things need to work in tandem. They need to work uh, just as we have to, to pay attention to our bodies and stay healthy we have to pay attention to our heart 
and stay open and healthy and try to heal whatever cracks there may be in that. And, you know, and a, and a cracked heart, a broken heart, of course, is an open heart. It teaches us compassion. So thinking about practice at Temple Bethel, we've been working on inviting our congregation to practice during this period of the Omer, these 49 days between Passover and Shavuot. And your book, Omer Accounting, has been the guide that we are using to sort of help us in a daily or weekly practice, depending on how people are choosing to use what we're offering them. But in your book, you invite us to travel a path, and you use sort of each of the seven weeks of the Omer to consider seven different, uh, I don't know how exactly to call them, admonitions, suggestions, tasks, decide, discern, choose, hope, imagine, courage, pray. And so tell us about these tasks. How does this process lead to a sense of transformation? Well, I call them spiritual principles. I ask myself the question, you know, every process begins with a really good question. So I ask myself the question, if the period of the Omer goes from Passover, which is the holiday that celebrates freedom, to Shavuot, which is the holiday that of the giving of the Torah, which gives structure to our freedom, so that freedom isn't just this wild, willy-nilly, I'll do whatever I want, but rather there's a scaffold in which we can become free. What are the steps, what are the spiritual principles that I need to learn to become free of what scares me, of what pains me, of what makes me anxious? What are those steps that I need that can help me become free? And I developed seven steps that could overlay the seven weeks of the Omer. And the first among them is decision. You have to decide. People don't change unless they decide to. We don't change unless we decide to. And a decision is a very powerful spiritual principle. And then we have to discern and choose. So decide, discern, and choose are, are, are kind of like a triplet in this beginning path where I, I discern what it is that will help me and enable me to step on a path of personal freedom. And, you know, when I'm on a path of personal freedom, I'm being invited to live a life that is more attuned to who I was always supposed to be, to, true, to my true identity, to my authentic self. And so we go through three series that we do over and over again. We decide, we discern, we choose over and over again. Once you make that choice to be different, um, let's say, let's give a real tangible um, example. I decide to have, let's say, less conflict in my life so that when I'm driving in a car, perhaps with my spouse, I'm going to decide not to fight in the car, which I think is probably a normal thing to do in the car sometimes with spouses. You're going too fast. You're going too slow. Put on the air. Don't put on the air. And I make that decision. So that decision will bring a little bit more peace to my life. But I will be asked over and over again to choose again, choose again, choose again. It's not something that I choose on a Sunday in 2023 and then I'm done. I have to choose it over and every time I get into the car, I have to choose to say positive words rather than negative words. So I was thinking about that idea of choice. 
I used to do a lot of work with people who were in recovery. I would go to a meeting, and each week at this meeting, this woman would say, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I am a grateful recovering alcoholic and drug addict. And thank God I didn't have a drink today, because if I had had a drink, I wouldn't have had one drink. I would have had 10 drinks, and I'd be dead. Thank God I didn't have a drink today. And she would introduce herself this way at every meeting. It was kind of like her mantra. And after a few weeks, I, I went up to her and I said, can I ask you, how long have you had your sobriety? And she said, 33 years. But for her, it was 33 years of every morning when she woke up, I can't have a drink when I wake up. I can't have a drink with breakfast. I can't have a drink in the morning. I can't have a drink at lunch. I can't have a drink in the afternoon. I can't go to happy hour. I can't have a drink with dinner. I can't have a nightcap. It was a choice like all day long, a series of choices all day long that she had to continue to make to resist the urge that she had to have a drink. But because she was able to be as disciplined in that practice of choosing, she was able to put together a second marriage because she blew up the first one and a career and a life and children and grandchildren and friendships and all of the things that make for a full human life that she wouldn't have had if she wasn't as disciplined about that process of choosing that she had to be in order to uh, stay away from that, that tug that alcohol and drugs was pulling on her. Right. Every, every moment of every day, she chose health and wellness and wholeness. For the rest of us, some of us who may not be recovering from addiction, it's a thousand choices that, for instance, I have in my office, I used to have it in my work office, now I have it in my home office, a little picture. And it's this little girl with a kind of a knapsack on her back, and she's standing at a crossroads. There's a path that goes to the left and a path that goes to the right. And the path that goes to the left says, my life. And the one that goes to the right says, no longer an option. Hmm. That's what choice is. Whatever your thing is, whether it is as dramatic and life-affirming, life-controlling as addiction, or even just the nature of your, the way you speak to people or speak to others, you have a choice to go towards your life, or you have a choice to go towards Ugh, I thought this was no longer an option, but I walked down that path anyhow, hmm. over and over and over again. The question then becomes, is this life affirming or is this life draining? And then you decide to take a step. So you write a lot about brokenness and a lot of the ideas that you write about uh, and that you've spoken about is this idea that we kind of carry dents in our souls from wounds that we endure in the course of our lives. I remember you teaching about this idea that all of us carry a dent that happened when we were in third grade on the playground, that these dents have huge power. And so what is it about these dents? Uh, you know, why do they in seem to enslave us? Why do they have so much power? You know, why is it so difficult to heal a broken heart? Yeah, the city in Illinois of Cicero decides how many jail cells they have to build based on how many 
third graders are at risk. Wow. Which is an extraordinary statistic. When they're doing planning, how many jail cells do I need? And they decide based on how many youth at risk. Um, I don't, I don't know, Rabbi, why it's why. I don't, I don't really usually deal in the question why. Um, I, if you, I, I don't know why it's so hard to heal. I don't know why it's so painful to be insulted. I don't know why it can be so damaging. Um, take your example. If the, if your mother had pulled you back or the rabbi didn't answer your question, how that could have really changed the trajectory of how you were approaching the adult world or the world in general. I don't know the answer to the why, but I do know that it exists. I knew that, I know that all of us are healing from something and that our thing is always going to be our thing. We don't get over it. We just learn to not only live with it, but use it um, in a compassionate way. And so the question isn't why more, the question is how or what? How do I, how do I confront the pain that is in my heart? And what am I supposed to do uh, now that I know things can be so difficult? What is, what, how, what am I supposed to do with my life and how can I be of greater service? So you also write, I believe in the invisible, in hope, abundance, and possibility. I believe that hope is the opposite of cynicism, that abundant thinking manifests greatness, and that when we say yes to life, our path unfolds with a sense of meaning. So what does hope mean to you? Do you think hope can ever be misplaced? Isn't there a risk sometimes in hope? Yeah having dinner in a beautiful backyard with one of my congregants um, who was a very successful businessman and we were eating and we were drinking and we were talking and he said, you know what they always say, Rabbi, hope is not a strategy. And I thought a lot about that and it was um, pretty much before the high holidays. And I based a high holiday sermon on hope is hope a strategy or not a strategy. So perhaps um, in the business world, one could argue hope is not a strategy, depending on how you define it. Though you talk to Fortune 500 CEOs and they say, you know, I just went with my gut feeling. Uh, So it's not always the data that compels them forth into the new frontier. But in the spiritual life, in the religious life, hope is absolutely a strategy. Without hope, there is, as I said, as you quoted, cynicism and despair. And the alternative to hope is just not a a compelling and beautiful alternative. So I, I like to tell the story and I won't tell it at length right now, but when I was driving along in Israel once and saw a field of sunflowers, and these were not sunflowers that were like Van Gogh's sunflowers, but rather sunflowers that actually were harvested for the seeds Um, Israelis like to eat sunflower seeds. The middle of the sunflower seed, the middle of the sunflower was big and ugly and pregnant with seeds. And these were large sunflowers. And I walked into the field and I thought, these aren't particularly beautiful. Why are sunflowers such a symbol for hope and beauty? And then standing in that field in the middle of a very hot Israeli summer, I realized that sunflowers are symbols for us, not because of the way they look, 
but because of the way they behave, which is searching the heavens for the sun. And so a heart that is hopeful, despite the difficult circumstances one may be living in, searches the heavens for the light. And I think so much about hope is that sort of imagining a different possibility, which is, I think, one of the other principles you talk about. There's a wonderful book that was published last year by David Arno called Choosing Hope, and he writes something really interesting. He writes that, you know, hope isn't like the kinds of things that we often think it is, you know, where you hope that a particular baseball team is going to win, right? You're in Chicago and I'm in South Florida, so we can bond over misplaced hope that uh, our beloved Cubs or Marlins are going to field a competitive team. Or we can hope, as we live here in South Florida, watching uh, a hurricane trajectory, that it's not going to brush up against us. Or we can sit in a waiting room with a loved one who's having surgery and hope that the outcome is going to be okay And that's not exactly really what hope is. Hope is, in many ways, this idea about imagining a possible future that's different than the present and having the readiness to help bring it about. Arno writes this amazing phrase. He says, like God in whose image we are created, we are not defined by the past or present. Together with God, we inhabit an open future the place where hope resides. So, you know, thinking about those dents, you know, how does hope create for us a pathway, an answer to liberation from the fears or the resentments or the pain that those dents kind of impose that we walk around with? Wouldn't it be fantastic if the only limitation that we had was the limitation of our imagination? And therefore, we could expand our imagination and imagine a world in which is softer and kinder and filled with beauty. There is a a beautiful uh, Talmudic passage that says, that poses the question, and it says two words in Hebrew, Sapita le Yeshua, which roughly I translate as, can you anticipate salvation? Now, I don't know what salvation is, but if we redefine that phrase and say, can you imagine a time when everything will be okay? Sapita Yeshua, can you imagine a time when everything will be okay? And if we can imagine it, just like my father said so long ago, then I can step into that void and inhabit possibility. So Ross Douthat wrote a remarkable book about his journey through Lyme disease that I read last year. And in that book, he calls The Deep Places, which is his memoir of illness and discovery. He kind of talks also about the importance of hope and how it was that he was able to use hope to navigate life through what was a really crippling and, and difficult disease. And part of what I loved about what he wrote about was this idea that hope is not this optimistic expectation of relief, but it's the power to choose how one moves forward into the uncertainty. So, you know, when we look out at the future and we think about, okay, I want to be living a different life than I'm living now. I want to 
grow to be my more authentic self. What are the the things I got to throw in my toolkit that will help me sort of get off the mark and that are going to help me do what he suggested, which is this idea of sort of reaching for a future, even if that future seems elusive or out of reach. Exactly right. And that's what the seven principles are designed for, though I pose them in the period of the Omer. They really can be used in terms of any spiritual awakening or spiritual growth to make the decision to discern which way, which path to take, to choose again and again and again, to hope, to imagine. And to offer an active conversation with the invisible, which is how I define prayer. All these things are practices that will ground us in the ability to reach greater freedom and live the life we want to live. So thinking about freedom, as you mentioned before, freedom cannot be willy-nilly. You wrote that it cannot be wild abandonment. It can't be self-centered or untethered. To be free is to live the religious paradoxes of choice and destiny, independence and obligation, memory and vision of self-fulfillment and communal responsibility. Talk a little bit about the paradox of boundaries in freedom. Right, Human life is bounded in so many ways, and so much of what I think it is to be human is to figure out how you transcend those boundaries. And at the same time, that we deal with a human life that is bonded in so many ways, freedom sometimes seems to be a fuller expression of transcendence. But our tradition teaches that actually it's that sort of yoke of obligation that we impose on ourselves that leads us to transcendence. So thinking about the fact that we are living in a time when we're witnessing in our country and around the world an extraordinary regression of freedom How do you balance this sort of need to be free with the boundaries and impositions of obligations and and restrictions? So freedom does not mean I can do whatever I want whenever I want. You are not free to drive through a red light. Freedom means that I am free to ask myself, as Reformed Jews, I would put it in this context, three important questions. First important question is, what are those things that I need to do that can deepen my inner spiritual life? What are the obligations that I take upon myself so that I can have a deeper, more conscious, more intentional spiritual slash religious life? The second question is, how do I love my children so that they live in a world of yes? And the third question is, what is it that I have to do to heal this broken world? Any personal restriction that I have that does not allow me to answer those three questions fully, the resentment, the anger, the hurt, the fear, all of those need to be lessened so that I can live in the reality of love and hope and beauty, and possibility, and abundance, so that I am free to live in that world. And being in a world of beauty, therefore, I am obligated to lessen the pain in the world and to nurture my children, all of our children. 
So the final theme of these seven principles that are guiding us each week is prayer, which leads us into Shavuot. But I think prayer for a lot of people is like really hard. It's going to services and reciting liturgies that don't seem to relate or to touch us. And we haven't quite necessarily figured out what God is. And so we kind of have a hard time calling out to a God we don't know or understand or even can conceptualize. We wonder if there's a need even to call out to a God if we don't think there's a God that's listening. Prayer, I know, is really important to you, and not just as a congregational leader who led for 19 years a congregation in worship, but what does prayer mean to you? When you pray, what are you doing? What What's happening for you in prayer? Prayer is a very complicated thing for all the reasons that you just said. And what if we were free from all those assumptions? Another way to use the word free, free from assumptions that keep us from an active conversation with the invisible. My latest book, which I call Amen, what if prayer was just some eternal, long sigh that says amen, that says yes to the world? When I'm engaged in prayer, sometimes I'm paying attention to the words that are written. And sometimes I'm allowing the words that are written and the beautiful music and your synagogue has such incredible, beautiful music to wash over me. And my prayer is the silences and the yearnings of my heart. Prayer is not, the prayer book is not a literal catechism. It is a invitation to have a dialogue with the intangibles in life, to enter into the mystery and to sigh and to shake our fists at the heavens, and to quietly whimper, and to smile, and to have joy. All those are expressions of prayer, which we can do alone in our house, but also while sitting next to the the person in the pew who needs our presence in order to be uplifted by prayer. I think that having that place in the community where you can gather to shake your fist or sigh or engage that inner conversation or to be presented with a new idea matters. I was talking to somebody who had a loss, and she said, you know, it was one thing to say Kaddish at home while I was watching services online, but to be surrounded on all sides with other people who were saying those words with me really helped me to find a sense of strength to move through those difficult emptinesses of loss. I think there is something about having that person next to you that influences us, I think, in how we grow to be who we are. My last question is, what is the essential question that you're confronting in your life? My abiding question is... How do I live a life of meaning and purpose? So meaning I define as that internal conversation we have in the middle of the night that says, why am I here? What am I here for? In which we deepen our sense of connection to all things essential. And purpose is the external conversation we have when we walk along the street and we look at our neighbor and say, how can I be of service? How can I help? And so my converse, my question is about meaning and purpose. And I am 
on a quest to have deeper meaning, to find avenues in which I can walk with a person in their quest with deeper meaning, and to have a greater sense of purpose where we can fix this world, which is so incredibly broken. Rabbi Karen Kadar will be with Temple Bethel as we celebrate the Festival of Shavuot. We're really excited, uh, Karen, to have you learn with us in our congregation and very, very grateful for you guiding us through the Omer and in our conversation today. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Bethel Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word And we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboka.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast. Mm